This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2022, live in a classroom at Yale University. Oligarchies in Russia and Ukraine. It, it appears that a couple of uh, a couple of Russian missiles just fell on Polish territory, um, which uh, which leads us nicely into our theme today. Uh, I, what I'd like to do today is I want to actually want to take a step back and talk at greater length about the Polish factor, just as I did a couple of lectures ago about the German factor. I want to I want to do properly what I meant to do last time, which is to give you to give you a sense of how. Polish policy after 1989 uh, helped Ukraine to become the state that Ukraine has become. I'm going to use that to lead into the main subject, which is the 1980s, the 1990s, and the formation of a Ukrainian state. So from today's point of view, November 15th or so, 2022, where Poland is Ukrainian staunchest supporter or one of Ukrainian staunchest supporters, where there are where there have been millions of Ukrainian refugees in Poland in the last nine months. It's very difficult to remember that, in fact, Ukrainian, Ukrainian national identity, when it formed, was formed against Poland, right? Against Poland. And, uh, and so the, the, the Cossacks, the Cossack legend, um, the struggling peasantry, right? The, 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 the battle for land, all of that is chiefly about not Russia, but Poland. It's about Poland. And then the Polish-Ukrainian encounter over the centuries has also created a lot of the concepts, a lot of the, a lot of the underlying political notions that are taken for granted in Ukraine today, and has been creative in lots of other ways. So I just want to start by reminding you of that. I know that you know it, right? Because like, one of the basic themes of this class has been that nations don't come from nowhere. There's no, no, you know, humans evolved once in Africa, right? None of us is truly autochthonous. Um, groups come into contact with one another. The alphabet was only invented once. I can do this all day, right? Um, the, but so when we look at a nation, the gut instinct of a state is very often to say there was ethnogenesis and like a people formed a thousand years ago and maybe there was a baptism or like some magical event where we all started cherry tree was cut down, whatever, constitution, you name it. Like some moment where everything is like a, get a clean, fresh start. But that's not the way history actually works. Nations are um, par excellence international events, right? And so when we get, in order to explain Ukraine or any other country, you have to get all the international factors into the picture. This is something that Roman Sporluk, who was, who was and is a great Ukrainian historian, always insisted on. And it's true for everybody, right? It's true for Russia, it's true for China, it's true for America. If it weren't for the particular configuration of British-French British -French relations having to do with the Seven Years' War, no America, or some completely different version of America. All right, so I wanna just remind you how important the Polish factor has been for Ukraine, right? You, you know that it was Lithuania, which very quickly thereafter formed a personal union with Poland, which swept up most of the territories of old Rus including Kiev. You know that it was Lithuania, which very quickly merged with Poland um, in a personal union, which perpetuated much of the cultural attainments of Kiev, including the language of law um, and, and much of the law. You know that because of the Polish-Lithuanian state or the Lithuanian-Polish state, 
Kiev becomes a, a, a major center of European trends, such as Renaissance, Reformation, Counter-Reformation. Kiev, along with Chernihiv, a couple of other places. Um, if this were a class in Belarusian history, we'd be talking about some other characters like, um, like Skarina. But Kiev is one of the places where an Orthodox world, an Eastern Christian world, is bouncing up against these Western trends. Um, and that's because of the Polish connection or the Lithuanian connection. The idea of a republic which is very important, right? Respublica, Rzeczpospolita, Rzeczpospolita. The idea of a republic comes from Poland. It's not coming directly from Rome, of course. It's coming, it's coming from Poland. The idea of political rights in a republic, which may not be held by everybody, and of course, the dispute between the Cossacks and the Polish nobility back in the 16th century, 17th century, is largely about who belongs to the republic. Right? Who actually has rights? Um, if, the, if the republic means the common matter, who is the public? Right? Who, who has access to rights? Both at the micro level and at the macro level, the Cossack Rebellion of 1648 is largely about that. If Bogdan Chmielnicki had had better access to justice by way of courts, if he'd been seen as a noble, then probably no rebellion, at least not at that, at that time. Um, the Cossacks themselves, this particular formation of Cossacks, anyway, um, around Zaporizhia, is a result of Polish power, encounter of Polish power with the Crimean Tatars. They're living in a zone between Polish power and the Crimean Tatars, and they're learning, and they're learning from both, adapting to both, right? Um, so Poland, Poland, Lithuania loses the left bank. Um, the, I've gotten all kinds of directions from email about what I should do with my hands when I talk about left bank and right bank, like. They say, like, when you talk about the right bank, move your left hand, and then the students will understand. But I'm just assuming you guys don't actually don't even know your left from right, right? So it's like, it doesn't matter what I do, right? I can just, I'm assuming you're like my kids. They're like, if I say left, they go right, they go da da da. da. So I'm just gonna do whatever I want with my hands. When I talk about, so, but the eastern part of Ukraine, Poland loses. The left bank is lost in the 1660s, 1670s. The right bank is lost about a century later when Poland is partitioned, 1770s. 1790s. Um, so, so you know there are four, or, there are four or five hundred years here that one has to account for, where the Polish factor is very, very direct. And even after Poland no longer exists, as we've talked about, it's still the Polish aristocracy that owns much of the land in um, in, in right bank Ukraine, all the way up to the Bolshevik Revolution. So, um, and so there, there too, there's an important idea of property rights, um, and the and the desire of Ukrainian peasants to have, to have property. Then there's, this, there's also this minor current, um, which becomes major later on, which is Galicia Volinia, Halicina especially, Galicia, which is part of Poland, as known as, um, known as Rus Czerwona, Czerwona Rus, Red Ruthenia. It's part of Poland from the 1340s onward, and then is part of the Habsburg monarchy, and then is part of Poland again. And, and then that, that region, Halicina, Galicia, becomes part of the Soviet Union after, after the Second World War, and then is, the, is, is, is much of what we now call Western, Western Ukraine. Okay, so I'm just reminding you, I don't, so I don't want you to forget any of this when we enter into the modern period, right? Because there's this, this temptation, it's in the 20th century, this kind of unhealthy temptation to say, okay, well, something has just happened and now everything else is gone, right? Like the First World War is the war to end all wars, right? 
and you know the Second World War was thought to reset everything, and then the Cold War came to an end, and history itself supposedly then also came to an end. You know all these kind of mental mental resets, but there's no way to understand Ukraine without this long trajectory, which of course can be can be interpreted in various ways. But it's uncontroversial, and I think incontrovertible to say, without the Polish factor in the long run, there wouldn't be a Ukraine of the kind that we now that we now have. So. What I want to explain now is the thing that I was very hasty about the last time, which is how Polish foreign policy and Polish thinking about Ukraine had a decisive, and I would even venture to say world historical effect in the 80s and, and, and 1990s. And to do this, I need to draw your attention to a certain, I'm going to have to make a certain anti-imperial point, which is this. When people talk about the period 89 to 91 now, they talk about Moscow and Washington, which is already problematic because what happened in 89 to 91 had a lot to do with Warsaw, Prague, Budapest, Vilnius, a lot of other places. But more than that, people talk about Moscow and Washington as though they knew what they were doing, right? Especially with respect to Washington. There's a lot, there's, a, there's this very strange view which holds that things had, the Soviet Union broke up in 1991 because the Americans and they were all powerful and they machinated, is that a word? Um, it was all machine, right? Like they, like they were behind everything and somehow there was a plot and they wanted to break the Soviet Union up. And that's just not so, right? That's just not so. American policy at the time was to hold the Soviet Union together. And the period 89 to 91 was a series of one unexpected event after the other, which people reacted to, sometimes very skillfully. The Bush administration reacted very skillfully to an unexpected situation, especially with respect to the unification of Germany. There were some good diplomats at work, no denying that. But no, basically nobody expected the East European revolutions of 89. And even after the East European revolutions of 89, very, very few people expected the Soviet Union to fall apart in 1991. And the American political class was working um, with great determination in the opposite direction to try to keep Gorbachev in power and to try to keep the Soviet Union together. So it's so when we I just I, 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 I mention all that because this is not a class about the Cold War, although there's, you know, Arne Vestad teaches great classes about this. This is a class about Ukraine, but it's very important to see that these countries, which on, where people lose focus, right? Like what people remember about 89 to 91, I mean, okay, what's one image from 89 to 91? All the Berlin. Yes, David Hasselhoff. Um, sorry, that, did, that joke did not work. Okay, <laughs> that joke was totally out of, you know who David Hasselhoff is? Okay, so like you know that he played on the Berlin Wall? Yeah, so David Hasselhoff here is like Kit and Knight Rider. That was a Knight Rider, yeah. Whereas in Germany, he's a rock star, and in Austria, he's a rock star. And so when the Berlin Wall fell, like David Hasselhoff went and played. So, okay, you don't need David Hasselhoff, but the image is the Berlin Wall falling, okay, which A, it didn't fall. Like, it's a very dramatic image, right? Like, the people, and then it fell. It didn't actually fall. Like they opened the gates, and they opened the gates because an Italian journalist asked a question, and you know, and the East German official gave an ambiguous answer, and people went to the gates, and the border official, the border guards opened them, and then they charged into. But that's not how communism really came to an end. The reason why we like Berlin Wall is because it's very dramatic, right? And because it's Germany, 
and Germany is a big, important country. But the real action at the end of the Cold War was not actually in Germany. Um, the real action at the very end of the Cold War was much more in Poland than anywhere else. And when it comes to the end of the Soviet Union, we can't understand that part without Ukraine. Okay, I'm sure you all get that. So the point that I want to make now is that there was an interior development inside Poland or among Poles that was running against the main current of communism and also against the main current of nationalism. And if that sounds contradictory, keep in mind that one of the ways that communism was trying to stay in power by the 70s and 80s was as a kind of boring, homogenizing version of nationalism. A nationalism which looked back to uncontroversial symbols that wouldn't offend the people in Moscow. A communism that took credit in the Polish case for making the country nationally homogeneous, i.e. without Germans, without Ukrainians, and without, without Jews. A communism which seemed like it could go on forever, and indeed that is what the 70s and 80s felt like, right? So in order to, in order, sorry, in order to understand this, like the mood shift of 89, um, one has to grasp that it really did seem like that version of communism could go on forever. It really did seem like that they were winning, as they put it, the correlation of forces was in their favor, that they were winning in the third world, that they would keep winning in the third world, that, the, that, that their economy was big, comparable to the American economy. The CIA thought that the Soviet economy was in 1975 was 57% of the size of the US economy, which it almost certainly wasn't. The East German economy was thought of as being, I forget, but it's like the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, one of the biggest economies in, in the world, right? Um, or at least per capita. Th those things were really not true, but that's really how it seemed. So this, this, um, the, the version of communism which was, which was going on in Poland offers a kind, of, a kind of exception. And that exception was solidarity. And I have to mention solidarity. I realize this is a class about Ukraine, not about Poland. But the, the solidarity movement in Poland, um, which uh, one of your TAs whose name I won't mention since I've like, learned I shouldn't mention anybody's name because then they get like millions of emails. Um, but one of your two a TAs, who shall now remain nameless, works on this subject. I'll be very happy to talk to you about it. You can, you can guess which one. Um, so, uh, so, so solidarity is very special because what solidarity does is that it opens a kind of window where discussions of difficult questions having to do with communism and nationalism are possible. Solidarity is possible because it, because the, Pol the Polish workers above all, right? Who gets left out of the story of the revolution? The workers. There was only one working class revolution ever, and it was in Poland. And who gets left out of the story? Poland and the workers, right? So, um, you know, so it's very like 89, it's all about the clever guys in the suits. No, it's fundamentally about a working class revolution which began in Poland, which made it seem possible that communism could come to an end. So, what was special about Poland was this. In the 70s, the Polish regime was operating basically the way that other communist regimes in Eastern Europe were operating and the way Brezhnev wanted them to operate. Namely, no discussions of ideology, Marxism is dead, um, no serious attempts to reform the system, reform is dangerous, if you try to reform, we can invade you, as in Czechoslovakia in 1968, that's the Brezhnev doctrine. The country seems to be getting a little bit out of line, then fraternal assistance. Um, so, so the Polish government, which was led by uh, a man called Edward Gierek, um, 
took this to kind of its logical extreme and said, okay, if this is all about consumerism and nationalism, then what we're gonna do is we're gonna borrow, and you can see that you can see like how this is just the next logical step. We're gonna borrow a lot of money from the West. We're gonna let people travel a little bit more. Um, we're gonna work on refrigerators and cars and, 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 consume, and consumer goods, try to provide them. Uh, and, uh, and for about five years, this seemed like it was going very well. We're talking about the 1970s now. After, so, but but after, after about five years of this, you get oil crisis, you get Poland not being able to pay back its hard currency debts, right? So hard currency debt may sound like a technical term in, up until the moment when you don't have hard currency, right? So if you borrow money in dollars or German marks, as they were at the time, you have to be able to pay it back in dollars or German marks, which means that you have to be able to sell something which will give you dollars or German marks, which the Poles were not really in a position to be able to do. They invested, they overinvested in heavy industry. They didn't invest in things that they could actually sell, like textiles and agriculture. So they found the economy by 1979 went into the red. GDP in 1979 in Poland was, was, was negative. Solidarity begins as an economic protest against, against price increases, but it, it, it morphs very quickly into a political movement which demands the right to form a free and independent labor union. That's what solidarity is. It's a labor union. Um, but also other political rights like the release of political prisoners and freedom of speech. Solidarity exists in Poland for about 16 months um, from, from, August, from August of 1980 until martial law is declared in December of 1981. And during the 16 month period, there is a free discussion in the press, in public, among people of many difficult questions, including the Ukrainian question. Um, and Solidarity itself does some very interesting things with respect to Ukraine, like for example, express its solidarity with the nations of the Soviet Union. I'm sure that sounds incredibly, you know, like an incredibly bland formulation now, but in 1981, that was an extraordinary thing to say, to recognize the nations of the Soviet Union. Um, and in, I'll talk more about this in a moment, but in solidarity newspapers um, and even in public discussions, many of the difficult questions of Polish-Ukrainian relations, which we've talked about, like the ethnic cleansings in Volynia, Operation Vistula, Right, um, the interwar Poland and its oppressive policies towards Ukrainians. Uh, many of these things were discussed. Right, many of the things were worked out. People in solidarity had the sense correctly that the Ukrainian question was being used against them. Right, that the Ukrainian question was uh, was being used to keep Poles in their place. Okay, how did they know to do this? And th this is the part that I did in 45 seconds last time, and I just want I want to spend a few more moments on it. This is the part about where I was trying to make the point that history doesn't come to an end, and so you should plan for the future, right? Which is, I'm sure that's what your mom and dad tell you all the time anyway, right? Like, you know, dude, sorry, I'm not gonna do an imitation of all of your parents. I have limited time. I only know some of your parents. Um, this is being filmed. Okay, so the, um, the, the, the point though, and it's a very serious point, is that if you think history is coming to an end, Right, or if there's only one destination for history, then political imagination just disappears, right? Just disappears. Um, and you know, if you're in a complaining mood, you might say like, oh, this is the story of my lifetime because in the United States, everyone said history came to an end in 1989 and then like everyone stopped thinking about the future and here we are, 
right? There, so there's an, that you may have a, that, you may, that may give you an intuitive sense of what I'm talking about. Um, so, but what, what happened in the Polish case is that a group of, a very small group of Polish thinkers centered around this journal called Kultura um, rethought the issue of Poland and its Eastern neighbors. And in particular, they rethought the issue of Poland and Ukraine. And the men and women who did this were coming out of a liberal statist milieu in interwar Poland. They didn't come from nowhere. These were the same people who in interwar Poland thought there should be autonomy for Galicia. Um, we have to take the Ukrainian question seriously. Some of them were active in the attempt um, to create autonomy in Volhynia. Some of them were thinking about how we might break the Soviet Union apart. This group survives, most of them, survives the Second World War. Um, they end up abroad in, in, in a suburb of Paris called Maison Lafitte, which is chiefly known for its horse races. Um, you know, just in case you go there, like that's something you could do. The food's also nice. Um, so they, they went to Maison Lafitte because they couldn't afford the rent in Paris. Um, and how do they get to Paris? Here's how they got to Paris. First, you serve in the Polish army. Second, Germany invades. Third, you retreat to the east. Fourth, Soviet Union invades. Fifth, you get deported to the Gulag. Sixth, after you're deported to the Gulag, Germany invades the Soviet Union. Seventh, Stalin decides that he needs you to fight after all on his side. Eighth, you're allowed to form an army, but not one that's gonna, form, that's gonna fight on the Eastern Front, only on the Western Front. What number am I on? Ninth, um, you, you form up in, you, you, you're, you're released from the Gulag, you probably leave your wives and children behind. You're released from the Gulag. Men, um, you, you probably leave your wives and children behind the Gulag. You, 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 you form up, that part of the story always gets left out. But if you think about it for just a minute, you realize, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Where were the women and children? Oh, they were still in the Gulag. Um, okay, so you form up, you form, that's what heroism looks like. So you form up, you, you, you form up in an army um, in a base in southern Russia. You make your way through Iran, um, Iraq, Palestine, northern Africa. You fight um, on the Western Front in Italy, take terrible casualties, especially at a famous battle called Monte Cassino. That's the standard trajectory, right? And then, I, after having done all of that, of course, the Soviets win the war on the Eastern Front, Poland goes communist, you can't go home. Okay, so simple little story. Um, that's the basic trajectory of a lot of, a lot of these folks. Um, there are variations, but that's the basic idea. So, so these, are these are people who are very often Russian speakers. Jerzy Gedroyd's the most important of them, born in Minsk. Russian probably is preferred language of reading. Had a Russian wife for a while. Um, uh, Yusuf Chapsky, probably the second most important of them, um, born in what's now Belarus. Uh, very extremely cosmopolitan origins. Chooses Polish identity. These are people who knew Russian, who knew who knew who knew Eastern Europe, who had a sense that Poland, you know, their their, their, their sensibility about Poland was everything opposite everything contrary to the notion that it was just some kind of small central European ethnically homogeneous entity. But their achievement, their achievement was to think about the future um, and, and to imagine, imagine what it would be like to be an independent Poland in Eastern Europe. In other words, they went beyond 
the obvious grievance position, which is, a, I mean, it is totally obvious. Poland lost half its territory. It lost millions of people during the war. It was an ally, right? The whole Second World War was fought because of Poland. And even though it was an ally, it still ends up under Soviet rule. The entirety of Warsaw is destroyed at the end of the war. So they had, there are things to have grievances about, but they, if you want, quite calmly or even coldly, move beyond the grievance. Oh, and the point is a lot of these grievances could be directed against Ukrainians, right? Ukrainians got Western Ukraine. That's not what they called it. Ukrainians got the districts of, you know, of, of Małopolska-Wschodnia. They got Wołyn. The Ukrainians got this territory from us. So a lot of these grievances could be directed against Ukrainians. What Kultura did was they moved beyond the grievance position into what they portrayed as a geopolitical position, which is interesting. They said, okay, if there's going to be an independent Poland, how is that going to be possible? How is it going to be possible? It's going to be possible with an independent Lithuania, independent Belarus, and especially independent Ukraine. Um, and and, and, and the, the reason why this is so important, this is, this is their argument, is that is imperialism. Imperialism. Russian imperialism will only be blocked by an independent Ukraine. Polish imperialism will only be blocked by an independent Ukraine. There's a very important degree of self-understanding and self-knowledge in this. When I went to visit Jerzy Giedroyc, um in Paris and Maison Lafitte in 1994 for the first time, um, I, he, you know, he had no idea who I was. He didn't have a particularly high opinion of Americans. Um, and uh, you know, I was just some like, kid. But I told him what I was working on. At the time, I was working on Polish, like contemporary Polish diplomatic relations with Ukraine and Lithuania. And he said, he gave me this little speech in which he said, you know, Poroszepana, like you've probably heard um, a great deal about the romantic Polish legacy in the East and all the terrible suffering of the Poles in the East. And, and he said, this is all nonsense, right? Which is a very strong thing, very, to deny the entire frontier rhetoric of your own country, very strong position, right? To take Polish romanticism and say, mm, just going to push that aside, right? Very strong position, very strong position. Um, and so they're, they're, they start with the geopolitical logic. And the whole time what they say is, this is all, okay, this is all just cold, hard geopolitical reasoning. That's what they say. But in order to carry this out, in order to make Ukraine real, they engage with Ukraine. And, for, and again, for a lot of them, they've been already doing this for decades, right? So Giedroyts, took a class in Ukrainian history, and I think 1924 in, in, in Warsaw, right? Okay, so classes in Ukrainian history, they're important. He took a class in Ukrainian history as a law student in Warsaw. Um, he was engaged with the Galician question in interwar Poland. It wasn't the first time they thought about Ukraine, um, but they engaged with Ukraine in the sense that they publish, I mentioned this last time, they published Ukrainian writers. Right? They published George Shevelov, who is a brilliant Ukrainian philologist. Um, they published Boris Levitsky, who is a, who was, who was a otherwise unknown but very talented Sovietologist or contemporary historian of the Soviet Union. Um, they publish a thousand pages of what Giedroyds calls the executed renaissance, which is the, 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 the murdered or um, some of them committed suicide, but the, 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 the murdered or exiled Soviet Ukrainian writers of the 20s, the 20s and early, and early 30s. In 1952, they publish a letter, I mentioned this last time, they publish a letter saying, let the, let the blue yellow flag fly over Lviv, 
which is an extraordinary, at the time, an extraordinary thing to say. And then they backed that up with, for over the course of the 60s and 70s with a long series of geopolitical articles. But the entire time they're doing this, they're also publishing, and here comes the, here comes the, the slightly, you know, the, the, the part which is slightly impalpable, but they also befriend Ukrainian writers, right? They befriend Ukrainian writers. Ukrainian writers become part of their milieu. Over the course of the decades, these friendships build up um, and, uh, and Ukraine becomes real for them. So the entire time they're saying, this is just like a cold-hearted, you know, we're just cold-hearted geopoliticians. We're just doing this in the interest of the Polish state. And that's some of the truth, maybe even most of the truth. But that calculation, I mean, you might even say that geopolitics was only possible with the help of the personal dimension, right? They couldn't have done it themselves. They needed to do it with the Ukrainians, right? And so a lot of Ukrainians um, found their voice. Oh, and I almost forgot to say, the person, he only published one article in Kultura, to my knowledge, but the person who was often guiding Giedroitz about who to publish on the pages of Kultura was this fellow Ivan Rudnitsky who I mentioned towards the beginning of the course. Ivan Rudnitsky, um, who, is, like, who comes from this, this Ukrainian family, Jewish origin. Um, his mother was Milena Rudnitska, powerful orator, parliamentarian in interwar Poland. It was Ivan Rudnitsky who, in the, in the 60s and 70s in particular, was winning the, the debate in the diaspora about what, the, what, the, what kind of nation Ukraine was, he was also advising Giedroitz about who to publish in Ukraine, right? Rudnitsky, you know who Rudnitsky is because you're doing the reading, right? I don't have to tell you, who you, you're doing the reading. Yes, I like the smiles when I say that. I'm not gonna think too hard about what those smiles mean, but I like them. Um, so Rudnitsky, so who's the most influential voice on, on behalf of the argument that Ukraine is a political nation, and not an ethnic one, is involved with Giedroitz, has a very similar idea, right? A very similar idea about nationhood, which is it's fundamentally a political commitment, fundamentally about political action. Okay, so why am I dwelling on this so much? I'm dwelling on this so much because you've seen in this class how Ukraine is a result of, and uh, you know, sometimes the victim of, various imperial powers. You can't make sense of Ukraine without the Ottomans and the Crimean Tatars. You can't make sense of Ukraine even without the Swedes, if only, if only briefly. The Austrians certainly matter quite a lot, um, and uh, the Germans matter definitely, especially in the 20th century. The most important imperial powers would be the Russians and the Poles. If you look at the situation as the Soviet Union is coming to an end in the late 1980s, you're down to only two possible imperial powers. Well, Let's be, let's, be, let's be nice to everybody else. Only two possible imperial powers, the Poles and the Russians. And the Poles take themselves out of the picture. The Poles take themselves out of the picture. The Poles in fall of 1990, before Ukraine is an independent state, before the Soviet Union has ceased to exist, they say, we, they make up this thing of like a treaty with a country that doesn't exist, right? Diplo diplomacy can be more interesting than you think. So they, ma they make up this, this, um, this um, they make up this instrument, which is a kind of treaty with the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which says, we each recognize each other's borders. It could seem trivial, right? But it's not at all trivial. What they are doing is they're putting the border question off the table preemptively. 
And then, and when they do this, I should mention solidarity again, they're following the debate which has been happening in solidarity in the 1980s. Um, the solidarity debate all moved in that direction so that when, so when communism came to an end in Poland, it wasn't like in other countries where suddenly all the historical questions rushed out at once and were very hard to handle. That was true for the Soviet Union, by the way. Um, in Poland, it was a bit different. The historical questions, many of them had already been set up um, like the Ukrainian question. And so then when there was suddenly a sovereign independent Poland, they could make policy based upon a previous discussion which had already happened, okay? So, so w by the time that Ukraine does become independent in December of 91, there is no Polish question. There is no Polish question. Um, the Poles have already declared that they are in favor of an independent Ukraine, which means that from December 1991 to the present day, the only potential imperial power and of course now real imperial power, but the only potential imperial power is Russia, right? So, the, so, the, so all right, so you see where I'm going with this. Like the, the part of the making of modern Ukraine is the encounter with Poland. Part of the making of the Ukrainian state as we know it now has to do with Polish-Ukrainian relations, which since 1991 have certainly had their ups and downs, but the, the recognition of Ukraine as an independent state and the Ukrainians as a separate people has, has always been a constant. Okay, so in Ukraine itself, I want to mention three influences on political thought in the 70s. So as you've noticed, I think the 70s are very important for where we are now because the 70s were when a certain generation which is still in power in Russia and Belarus was formed. And what's crucial in Ukraine, I think, is that that generation is no longer in charge in Ukraine, right? The people who run Ukraine now are in their upper 30s and, and, and lower 40s. They're from a different generation. This generation, which in the Soviet Union was called stagnation, or in Czechoslovakia, normalization. Um, this generation of the 70s, this generation where, this time when ideas were thought not to matter, you know, when, when, when history, as I talked about last time, was thought to be over, when ideologies were all thought to be discredited, and where cynicism was the dominant mood, um, that, that people had to try hard to come up with some way to think, um, to think out of the box. So at a time when East Europeans were being invited to just say, all that really matters is, you know, your personal, like we know, we agree with you, there's gonna be no glorious communist future. We agree, we know, we admit it. This is what, this is really existing socials and this is as good as it gets, but look, cars, maybe some foreign travel, um, refrigerators, right, television, Television was very important to this. Television programs, we'll give you that. And it's just gonna go on forever. There aren't any alternatives, that's the deal. How do you think your way out of that? And so this idea of normality, right? In Poland, this is important, um, to be abnormal in the 70s and 80s politically was to be Jewish or Ukrainian. Not really to be Jewish or Ukrainian. I mean, some of them were Jewish, but it meant, so like normal was like you're with the crowd. Right? You belong to the majority nation. You're not causing trouble, like you're with us. And, and the dissidents were all categorized Jewish, Ukrainian, Jewish, 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 Ukrainian, Jewish, 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 Ukrainian, right? Because that's what the secret police really liked. They liked to have them on the outside, right? So you're supposed to be normal. You're not supposed to raise your head. You're not supposed to raise your hand. You're not supposed to raise your eyes. You're not supposed to have ideas. You're just supposed to go along with this kind of, you know, this kind of consensus that we're day after day, we're kind of gonna have the same thing. Human rights was an answer to that, directly an answer to that, directly, directly, because Brezhnev in 1975 wanted 
recognition of the status quo. So Brezhnev in 1975, along with the Americans, the Canadians, the Europeans, um, held a conference in Helsinki. Very important conference. Things are still named after it today. People still find it very motivating. Um, what Brezhnev wanted was more of the same forever. So what he wanted was for the Western powers to acknowledge the Soviet borders and the borders of the East European states. So those, those borders were never recognized by anybody. There was never a peace treaty after the Second World War in Europe. So what he wanted was effectively a late peace treaty that would, that would, um, that would legalize, codify the status quo. The ironic outcome of all of this is something else. He gets that, he gets that, but in exchange, there are a few, if you read it, it's an interesting document, if you read the Helsinki Final Act, there are a few paragraphs in there, kind of buried, about human rights. And what the East Europeans did was they said, oh, we're gonna take this extremely seriously, right? The East Europeans said, well, that's now the law of the land. And of course they knew that they weren't in rule of law states and they knew that their leaders didn't really mean it. But nevertheless, the idea of human rights became very fruitful because with human rights, you can always find a gap between what the state says it's doing and what it should be doing, right? With human rights, you always have an argument coming from the person outwards or from human dignity outwards about the way things should be. It gives you a different kind of language of evaluation. So all across Eastern Europe, the Russians did this. Um, it, the, the Russian dissidents had already been publishing since the late 60s, something called the Chronicle of Current Events, which was using human rights language. Um, the Czechs did this. Charter 77 launches the distant career of Václav Havel, who eventually becomes president. The Poles did this. They had a committee, something called the Committee to Defend the Workers. Ukrainians did this. In 1976, they formed something called um, the, the Ukrainian Helsinki Committee. Um, and the Ukrainian Helsinki Committee, I'm sorry I have to be so hasty about all this. You know, we're doing a thousand years and like these are fascinating figures, but the Ukrainian Helsinki Committee uh, makes the interesting argument that the, the, the nationality is part of human rights, right? So it's not that the nation is an ethnic group, but the fact that I wanna speak my language or that I wanna be able to sing my songs, right? Or I wanna be able to wear my shirt, like that these things are part of my life as an individual. And so that national rights are actually individual rights, human rights. They said lots of other things that were much more universalistic and, you know, and, and conventional. But this is a point that they made. It's a very telling point that the nation doesn't have to be a collectivity. The nation can be something which resides in people and you can violate their rights by not letting them speak their language, right? So, uh, or by, you know, so, so taking my school books away, which is what happened in the 70s in Soviet Ukraine. De, de facto not letting me go to university in my own language, right? Um, the, not, not hiring me because I'm known to be somebody who speaks Ukrainian in public, that these are violations of human rights. And so the Brezhnevian language is all technical efficiency. You know, history's over, it's all about how, it's all about efficiency, so why don't we all just speak Russian, right? Because that would just be easier. How do you answer that language? You can only answer that language with some kind of why, right? With some kind of, with some kind of normative position. And human rights gave people that language. So one source of the political thinking which is going to inform Ukraine later on are the dissidents. Um, and the dissidents, this is predictable, the dissidents end up in the gulag. Um, the gulag is much smaller in, by the 70s and 80s, but it still exists. There are two, two major camps that Ukrainian dissidents are sent to. And in these camps, they encounter Ukrainian nationalists because 
those people were sentenced to 25-year terms, sometimes repeatedly, right? And so Ukrainian nationalists who were sentenced in the 40s, 50s, were fairly regularly still in the gulag in the 70s and 80s. And there were conversations in the gulag about what kind of future Ukrainian nation there, there would be. And again, I wish I could go into more detail with this because it's fascinating, but the basic drift is that the political nation argument wins out, right? That the ethnic national argument is seen, is, is, is seen for what it is. And certainly the dissidents in general have respect for the nationalists for having taken risks, right? Which they certainly did. And having resisted Soviet power, which they certainly did. But the, the, argue, the general drift is towards the political, the political characterization of the nation. The third place that this is happening is in the diaspora, um, in Canada, in the United States, especially, um, where it's the same kind of, it's the same, it's, interestingly, it's the same, the same two sides, where many of the people, and this remains true, many of the people who are very active in the Canadian American diaspora come from West Ukrainian families who are associated with nationalist politics. But the, over the decades, the argument becomes more about the Ukrainian state and about how this thing, which is Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic and its present boundaries, um, will become an independent state and what the politics of that will be like. And although this is not easy for people, um, the reality of Soviet Ukraine is that many people speak Russian. It's a multinational country, right? Um, making an independent state with just the idea of ethnic Ukrainians is going to be pretty tricky. And so the argument that Ukraine is basically political, and this is not trivial, also interesting, okay? I'm not gonna like, you don't have to tell me that you love the reading, you know? Like you don't have to tell me you love the reading. But it, at the time at least, the, the, the adventures that Ivan Rudnitsky was making in sort of intellectual political history, they were interesting, okay? Like compare, I'm not, I sound so defensive for like assigning you this stuff, but, but, but it wasn't just, you know, it was, you, you'll notice he's not just writing about how there were Ukrainian people and look at their songs and it lasted forever, right? That was my parody of Frushevsky. Um, it was, um, it was, it's about interesting combinations and individuals and like surprising currents that meet each other. And it's also about contact between Ukrainians and others, right? It's international history, right? So political nation means interesting history. It means you're working for an interesting account of where you came from and maybe where you're going. And so again, I'm making, I'm abbreviating this, all these like decades of debates, but again, it's the political notion of what Ukraine is gonna be like that wins out. And wins out before 91, okay? Wins out before 91, which is very, very important because the, Ukrainians, the Ukrainian territory, which is inherited in 91, is indeed a complicated and messy business. Okay, I have to be very brief about this, unfortunately. So when Ukraine, be, so how does Ukraine become an independent state? Ukraine becomes an independent state because Gorbachev messes up his attempt to reform the Soviet Union, understandably. Gorbachev has the idea that uh, communism can be reformed. As he tries to reform communism, he realizes he has to consolidate his own position because the Communist Party is full of de facto reactionary lobbies that will drag their feet and defend their interests. So he tries to build up a Soviet state. This is from 85 to 91. He tries to build up a Soviet state where he's gonna shift to being basically the president. He's gonna be the head of state and that's gonna matter. As he does this, the question is raised about the federal structure of the Soviet Union. So as you know, going back to 1922, essentially the Ukrainian question means that the Soviet Union has to be, or it has to look like 
a federal state with these national units. By summer of 1991, as a, as a new state treaty is being discussed, this question of how centralized or decentralized the Soviet Union is going to be is the thing which pushes Soviet conservatives against Gorbachev and brings about a coup. Um, where, where, where people try to bring down his, his rule in August of 1991. As a result of that, Gorbachev is pushed into the background. So the hero then, his name's not even on here, but you know, the hero then of that, of that little episode is a Russian communist um, called Boris Yeltsin. And what Yeltsin does is he, see, he sees this occasion, um, he leads the resistance to the coup. Gorbachev is in his dacha, right? He's in his dot. That's where you are during a coup. Like if you like read your lines, like it's coup. Okay, go to dacha, read book, wait for the knock on the door, stay in dacha. That's how it goes. Um, so Gorbachev is in his is in his dacha. Yeltsin goes, gets on top of a tank. Famously, at that age, he could still get on top of tanks. Um, and uh, and uh, and 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 the Russian military, the Soviet military hesitates, and the coup plotters lose. Yeltsin takes advantage of this to pull Russia out of the Soviet Union which leaves Yeltsin in charge. That's the way the Soviet Union comes to an end. Russia pulls itself out. The second most important actor in all of this is Ukraine. The, 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 the Russian, Belarusian, and Ukrainian leaders of the Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian parties meet um, in a forest in, in Belarus. They, they meet because they're, they're the heads of the three republics of 1922, which still exist in 1991. So the, the constituent republics of the Soviet Union that still exist meet to dissolve the Soviet Union. Now, the Ukraine, so the man who does that is Leonid Kravchuk. And Kravchuk is a party apparatchik. Um, he had been responsible for ideology, born in interwar Poland, actually, um, in the 30s, 1934 or thereabouts, in Volynia, which was then in, in Poland. Um, uh, Kravchuk it represents the, more, the most important current in the beginning of, of independent Ukraine, which are the slightly national communists, right? Because, see, by Ukraine from 1972, Soviet Ukraine from 1972 to 1989, had been ruled by the first secretary, Volodymyr Sterbitsky, who was a conservative and a Russifier. Um, Ukraine had been one of the least reformed republics during the Gorbachev period. Sterbitsky was against perestroika. He was against Gorbachev's reforms. Um, when the Chernobyl nuclear reactor blew up in 1986 in Ukraine, this made it seem like Gorbachev's reforms were meaningless. One of his reforms was called glasnost, which means like transparency. But the, re the reactor blew up, and nevertheless, they went out for the May Day parades and irradiated themselves in Ukraine. Um, because Gorbachev didn't want anyone to know that there had been this terrible accident, right? So Gorbachev's reforms, both in appearance and in reality, were much slower in Ukraine than elsewhere. Um, so there was a very brief interval before the Soviet Union came to an end for Ukraine to get its politics in order. Um, the result is that the way that U Ukraine comes to an end is that the, 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 the Communist Party is still the main force and there are people shifting at the top of the Communist Party. This fellow Kravchuk gets in charge. He sees his opportunity. After the coup, he, um, he has a referendum on Ukrainian independence. I guess this is important today. There's a referendum on Ukrainian independence, which a majority votes for in every region of Ukraine, including Crimea, by the way. More than 90%, this is 1991, more than 90% in the country as, as a whole. 
Um, and they also have presidential elections, and you know, Kravchuk turns out to be president, wonderful. So he, so he works this out very well. But what he represents is the most important current in Ukrainian politics at the beginning, which are the communists who are able to ride this wave and reestablish themselves in positions of authority inside, inside Ukraine. Okay, so I didn't quite get to Paul Manafort. You guys can remind me, make sure we get to Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort will probably appear in the next lecture, which Professor Shore is giving about, about Maidan. She'll also be getting the bad news that she has to do like 15 years before Maidan. All right, because I only got as far as I got. Um, please make sure to read the, her book, I think is the only assigned reading this week. Please make sure to do the reading before, before the lecture. Okay, thank you very much. These recordings were made and edited by Guy Ortoliva at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.